The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Last Wednesday night of the year, uh, we'll, we usually take two weeks off, both Christmas and New Year, and then we'll be back, was that the 3rd of January, maybe? Is that right? That's right, 3rd of January, I'm being told yes. Okay, um, so in the packet in front of you, a couple of sources... You know, uh, I'll just kind of point these out because they're bolded. You might make a note about them as to kind of what they are. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, New Testament history. I, I always, some of the reference materials and things like this, uh, the, especially the Old Testament histories. I had Merrill on there for a long time when we were going through the Old Testament. New Testament histories, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, several others that, that go through the, the, the New Testament. They're helpful. They give background context similar to what we're doing uh, that's kind of what they, they give a lot of background context behind the New Testament. Some of them are more complicated than others. I would say Bruce is kind of middle of the road. Some of the things that he says might be phrased in the most complicated way they possibly can, and then other things are very straightforward. So uh, take it for what it's worth. Um, D.A. Carson in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, that commentary set is one of those multi-volume ones. So you, it goes from Genesis to Revelation, and it's like, you know, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then, you know, and each book will be written typically by a different person. The Matthew one is written by D.A. Carson, so that one's helpful. Um, the last one is on the back on page six, uh, Ben Witherington, again, another New Testament history. Um, ben Witherington is a little bit different in the way he writes, uh, so it's, a, it's another really good one. I've always enjoyed his commentary. He's usually pretty good. So, uh, for what it's worth, those are uh, commended to you. They're, some of those are going to be more uh, spendy because they're much larger volumes. So just take that into account. Um, <clears throat> so uh, just as a review of where we've been up to this point, we've been uh, up through Jesus' childhood and his birth. And last week we obviously looked at um, John coming forward as the one who is sort of bearing witness to Jesus and preparing the people of Israel to um, hear of the Messiah's coming and to, and to see him coming into the world. And so we saw Jesus' childhood also, that it is one where um, Jesus grew in ju- just like uh, any other Jewish kid would grow up, where he's trained, he's developed, he learns. Uh, especially about the faith as his parents take him from various place to place. And, and we get these statements in Luke that sort of draw our mind uh, again to various other places like Samuel, where the person grows in wisdom and stature in the sight of God and man. And so uh, we have to kind of balance the fact that this, this individual, Jesus, is different than every other individual that has ever come before him and everyone that will come after He is both truly God and fully God and both truly and fully man. And that's that's a unicorn. That's not like anybody else that's ever existed. And so uh, we have to kind of balance the two things, knowing that, yes, he is fully God, but not taking away at all from his humanity. And so knowing that he is human, that means he grows and he learns and he has to be taught math and things like that, you know, and... Uh, his parents are instrumental in that process, and so is the community of Jews around him. Um, so in Jesus Christ, we, we spent a, a little bit of time dealing with some systematic theology, which is basically what I just said, that he is, in one respect, he has a human nature, and he's truly and fully human in that, in that uh, sense, and yet he is also truly and fully God. In Jesus is two... Um, centers of consciousness, or two wills, um, and yet he is one person. Um, so we just have to keep those two things in, in mind all at once, um, never taking away from one to pay homage to the other. Now, somewhere around 29 AD, at a real moment in human history, uh, God calls John the Baptist from the wilderness to go about the land preaching. And the content of the message that he's preaching is to all of the nation of Israel to repent from sin. And um, so he is preaching uh, repentance from sin, and then he is promoting a holy way of living. Because as he's preaching, hey, 
the Messiah is coming and his axe is laid to the root of the tree and he's going to cut down any tree that isn't bearing fruit. And so there's a lot of people that are hearing that message being preached and they're going, then what do we do? Tell us what we do because I don't want to be chopped down. And so John is then telling them that they need to live a righteous life. So there's two portions that are coming to them at the same time in the preaching of John's gospel, if you want to call it that, which is repentance of sin on the one hand and uh, holy living on the other hand. And he's doing this as a means of preparing the hearts of men and women in Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And as we saw last week, uh, there is that the, the gospel, the intros to the gospel as they're showing John preaching and things like that is really from about parallels from about Isaiah 40 on. And we're, we're kind of watching these two things parallel, and we're going to get to a little bit of that tonight, too, that at the beginning of Isaiah 40 is, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Right? And he says, here's the voice of one crying out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And what's significant about that, we spent some time on last week, is that in the Hebrew in uh, Isaiah 40, it, it's... Uh, in the wilderness, the voice is crying, and the location of where he's crying is, or, or, sorry, the voice is crying, and what he is crying is, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In the New Testament, the reading is a little bit more complex, and it sounds like he's crying out into the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, right? Or that's where he's located. And so the, the, the message then is essentially that the people of Israel are still out in exile. The exile that they're in is not a location exile anymore. They're not physically located in Babylon. They're spiritually located in Babylon. And John is crying out, Hey, you people who are out in the wilderness, wandering through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, or who are out in exile in Babylon, Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming. The Messiah is coming. And He's going to lead you out of spiritual exile. And right there in Matthew, we see that the exile that He's coming to lead them out of is forgiveness of sin. And so uh, we're going to pick up there with both John and Jesus as Jesus is now coming onto the scene and being baptized. And this also presents you know, other deeper theological issues. We've got historical issues, all kinds of things that are coming up in uh, dealing with Jesus being baptized. But what I want to remind you of is something I've already said, but this was weeks ago, so I don't expect you to remember. Um, the Essenes were known for their communal ownership of property. Remember, we talked about many, many moons ago uh, the, uh, the Essenes, and they were a group of people who lived out in the wilderness and they were, they were kind of odd birds when it, came, when it comes to Judaism. Uh, they were odd, a little bit odd, but actually revered by most Jews. They looked at the Essenes as a very pious community, a people that, you know, if all things were considered, they probably were the ones that have it figured out. They were probably the ones that at least have a, the strongest beat on what God is actually doing and what He's up to. And so the Essenes were also the group, more famously, they're known because they were the ones that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls or uh, recorded the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they were the community in Qumran out there in the caves and out in the wilderness. Now, one of the things that they, they did was they had kind of a communal ownership of property. And that was that anybody that was in their group, uh, they didn't take money from one. You didn't buy anything from them. They just traded stuff. If, if I've got a car and you want my car, here's my keys. Just come in and get my keys, and you can take my car and go do whatever you need to do with it. Um, well, of course, they didn't have cars, but you get the idea. Um, so that was kind of the way that they, they did. And then not only that, but they, they didn't necessarily condemn marriage, but they weren't overly excited to be married, and they didn't necessarily advocate for marriage. And so that meant that uh, they didn't have tons of children. But one thing that they did do is they fostered or adopted children quite a bit. And the reason that they would foster or adopt children is because other people would essentially give them their children, essentially like a boarding school, all right? You sort of send your kid off to a boarding school with the Essenes, and they live out in the, the wilderness, maybe, and then they learn how to serve the Lord in a priestly kind of way. So it's it much like a, a sort of a religious school, in a sense, that they would take in other people's children and teach them their way of life and how to live in accordance with what 
they felt like God was commanding people to live like and what he, he wanted Jews to live like. And so they would treat them as their own family and they would form them according to their own way of life. This is going somewhere, by the way. So just, just reminding you of that. Uh, so uh, another portion, part of, of the way that they taught was that anyone who wanted to join their group, if you wanted to become an Essene, you were not immediately just accepted into the membership of the Essenes, but you actually had to submit to the Essene way of life for an entire year. And not only that, you had to submit to that way of life and you were still in some capacity excluded from the community. In other words, you weren't a full participant in all the the Essene way of life, so to speak. You were excluded from the community. But after demonstrating that you could endure that lifestyle, that you really wanted to be a part of that lifestyle, you were committed, in other words, to joining this, uh, this group and committed to the lifestyle, uh, you were made a partaker of the community of Essenes by the waters of purification. So y- you didn't, nobody else, no other Essene dunked you into the waters, but you sort of ritually purified yourself in, uh, in these waters. And that kind of signaled to everyone that you were uh, accepting of the Essene way of life and uh, you were ready to be a part of the community. Now, the reason I think that's important is just, for one, from just a historical background perspective, this is kind of the uh, situation that Israel is in, in particular with the group of Essenes, that John the Baptist comes onto the scene in, right? So he, he comes to the scene, and we read him in the Gospels as wearing this crazy stuff and saying these crazy things and eating locusts and honey and all this kind of stuff. And this is not necessarily odd to a lot of other people who know of an Essene way of life that his life is sort of looking like anyway. So, was John the Baptist at some point a part of the Essene community? We don't know, is the answer to that question. We're not sure. We're never told that he is. Uh, nobody ever affirms that he is. Nobody ever says that he's not. Um, but my point is really not to say that he is, as much as it is to say some of the things that he's doing and acting like and looking like are very much like what the Essenes would do. And so there is a category for when people hear him preaching and teaching that they would say, that makes sense to us. Do you understand where I'm going with that? So so for him to stand in the waters and preach the way he's preaching, it would be received as strong, strong language. but, But at the same time, also one that people need to pay attention to. So John the Baptist has this very um, sort of odd position in human history because Christians look to him and go, he's the forerunner of the Christ. And Jews look to him and say he was a prophet. So whereas Jesus is not that way, right? Jesus is very polarizing. Obviously, Christians, we follow him as his disciples, but Jews do not follow him at all, right? That's essentially the difference. John the Baptist is not quite like that. He is revered by the Jews, at least many of the Jews uh, of his day. They view him as a prophet, and, uh, and the Pharisees even knew that. So, um, so was he a part of the Essene community? Well, we don't know exactly, but here, let me just lay out some things that might kind of go, hmm, that, that at least is interesting. Um, first, we know that he was working in the Judean wilderness and that he was called from the Judean wilderness uh, it says that in Matthew 3, 1, in, the days, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and that is at least in the region or in the very close proximity of where the Essene community lived predominantly. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. But second, uh, both John and the Essenes shared very similar ascetic diets, meaning they refused to eat uh, in you know luxury and things like that, they basically fed off of the land. And you see John coming in eating locusts and honey, and again, to us, that's odd, and especially even to the people who are used to going to pick up McDonald's every day, you know, in Jerusalem or whatever, you know, they're, they're like, I've seen it, it's right there next to the, uh, <laughs> next to where Jesus was crucified, there's a McDonald's, um, and a bus station, actually. Uh, so, you know, 
uh, that being, there wasn't really, all right, there wasn't. Um, but just like, you know, the people that might be used to sort of a lavish lifestyle and things like that, they would, um, might think that that was a little odd, but for a community that he might have been a part of, or at least attached to, or at least influenced by, uh, it wouldn't have seemed that, that strange. Um, third, John and the Essenes both believed that God's judgment on Israel was imminent and that repentance was necessary. So this to me is the message coming out of the Essene community and the message coming from John is very similar. You can read some of the writings of the Essenes and the community at Qumran and it sounds like John the Baptist wrote them. It sounds very similar to what John the Baptist is coming preaching. And so I could probably say with some reasonable level of confidence, he's at least very much influenced by the Essenes. So uh, here is uh, just a sample of what we've seen John say. Uh, look at Luke 3.9. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 17, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3, 7-12 But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the similarities here of obviously a strong message of repentance and a, a, a community of Israelites, of Jews, who are, have been wandering in exile for some time, this is a... a, a preparing the way for the Messiah. This is preparing what Jesus is going to come in preaching. But it's also something that is uh, that the Jews actually have a little bit of an appetite for based on how much they revere the Essene community in the wilderness. So, um, fourth, uh, the water ritual of purification was common among the Essenes and is now seems to have been at least brought into the wider com Jewish community and for similar reasons, the reason you would join the Essene community, you are repenting from a way of lifestyle that was not like the way God wants us as Jews to live, and, uh, and so you're essentially coming in. Uh, but now this is obviously brought to the, the wider community. But you can see in Matthew 3.11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, as we just read. Uh, Mark 1, 4-5, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So the, I guess the, mark, the big difference between what John is doing and what a large portion of maybe the Essene community might do the Essenes were largely reclusive. They're, they're kind of going away from society. They're moving out into the wilderness, and John is bringing the wilderness to them, essentially. He's coming to them with the message. Um, so whether he's coming directly from the Essenes or not, we don't know, but it's, it seems to be very close to what the Essenes are doing. Finally, John came from a priestly line. Remember, his father, Zechariah, was a priest, uh, on top of that, we find out in Luke 1, 7 that obviously they had no child. Uh, both Zechariah and Elizabeth had no child uh, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So these are, this is an elderly couple. This is an Abraham and Sarah kind of couple who now have a child. Uh, Zechariah is a priest, therefore John is born into a priestly family. 
the Essene way of living was essentially mimicking the lifestyle of the priesthood or the way the priesthood should be living. And so they wanted their community to live in that sort of priestly manner and um, prepare for both a priestly lifestyle and this priestly, kingly, messianic figure that's coming. So given that the Essenes lived this way, advocated this way of life, their preaching and their teaching was very similar to the way the priests were kind of wanting to live. Um, and couple that with the fact that John's parents are, a, are old whenever he's born, it's reasonable to conclude that at some point when he's young, they die, right? And who would then take in this, you know, adopted kid, essentially, to raise as their own, but a community that's already doing that with other children? So I would say that it's, it's at the very least very plausible that John could have grown up in this Essene community as much as his preaching reflects that and as much as his way of life sort of reflects that community. But the point is, in, you know, broader than that, is that there is a category for John in the Jewish mind as they're hearing him preach. And there, there's already a means that God has used to prepare the Jews to hear the message that is being preached. And, and we, you know, I, I think a lot of times we can, we can look at a, the Jewish people as a people that rejected the Messiah. And largely that's true. But you'd also have to say, you're not here unless some of them believed in the Messiah. We're not here as Christians unless some of them did believe. And a lot of that work that, they, that, that brought them to faith was God preparing even history before John the Baptist. So it's not just like John the Baptist you know, dropped onto the scene wearing camel hair and you know, kind of acting crazy and you know, looking crazy, and people were like, what on earth is this guy? Right? But there had been mountains of preparation that God had been doing for 400 years and more before John ever comes onto the scene to preach this message. Is that you, you tracking with me so far? Um, so it's important, I think, that we understand that and at least see that they ha there is a category for John. But that being said, uh, the baptism that John is bringing is, in the whole, a new thing for Israel. It might not be new, at least in part, for an Essene community or something like that. They might, they might be a little bit more familiar with something like it. Uh, but, the ba but baptism for Israel as a whole is really, really new. And so the people did have categories for the practice because they're watching some of these sects, but, but never for them to actually partake in. The closest we have for the broader Jew to understand what John is doing is when uh, a Gentile would convert to Judaism. So when the Jews would make a, what would be considered a proselyte, somebody who was of Gentile persuasion and then converted to Judaism, when someone would do that, there was a water of purification that was prescribed to cleanse oneself. There was also, um, and we don't get that actually in the Old Testament, we get that in some literature just before the New Testament that's just other Jewish material. But we also do get waters of purification for things like touching a dead body. So we have some of that in Numbers 19.11-12. It says, Whoever touches a dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the, with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. We also see some similarities of like washing when they would wash their hands before eating to, to cleanse the impurities off their hands, not from germs, but from touching Gentiles, essentially was you know, what it related to. And then before they would go into the temple, even now if you visit Israel, you can see the baths that they would walk through. The unclean person would walk down the stairs on one side, and they would walk through the purification waters, and then there's a whole other stairwell going up the other side for those who have already been cleaned. So you don't cross paths with the ones who are unclean, right? So there's some categories for things like this, but to, to actually be submerged in water by someone else 
you know, probably the closest thing to that is a Gentile converting to Judaism. So what does that say then if God is saying to the nation, everybody in the waters, repent of your sins and get in the waters of baptism. Everybody. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not for me. That's for the Gentile, maybe. I understand that. That's for the crazy Essenes out in the, you want to go join the Essene community. That's maybe for them. That's not for me. Right? Why is it that John is standing there in the waters, looks at the Pharisees and says, you brood of vipers. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What's he talking about? Get in the waters. It's you too. It's not just these people. It's you that he's calling into the waters also. Well, that's for the Gentiles. So John's message of repentance to the Jews then is essentially saying to them that your pedigree is irrelevant in God's sight. If you wish to be enrolled in the new Israel of the age that is about to dawn, you must take the outside place. In other words, acknowledging that you're not better in His eyes than Gentiles. And you must enter this end-time community of His people by baptism and repentance as everyone else has to do. So if you're going to come into the, mess, the Messiah's community or be prepared for the Messiah's community, you need to repent of your sins and get in the waters of purification like all the Gentiles do. In other words, uh, you must see yourself like the Gentiles see themselves. So Matthew 3, 7-10, we've read some of this, but he says, you, you brood of vipers, who warned you to, to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or as the way Luke says it, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by Him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the same thing is repeated both in Matthew and Luke. But that's what you have to do. Now, there is another category for this if we go back into the Old Testament, for something like this coming about, perhaps it might not have initially been read so literally, but uh, here in Ezekiel, it sort of takes on new meaning as we think about the baptism of John. Ezekiel promised that at the dawn of the new age, the God of Israel would purify His people from their defilement with clean water and give them a new heart and a new spirit. That is, His own spirit. So when you look at Ezekiel, 36, 25 to 27, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, says, and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this promise is what underlies the words of the new birth coming out of John chapter 3. Remember, this is the scene where John is interacting with this uh, Pharisee named, um, uh, named Nicodemus, and they're talking back and forth, and you know Jesus says, you got to be born again, and he's like, well, how, how can I be born again? i got to enter back into my mom's womb and come back out again. And Jesus says to him in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, likely a reference back to Ezekiel 36, 25, where God is promising that he's going to cleanse them with water and, he's going, and the Spirit, 
He's going to put His Spirit within them and remove their heart of stone and give them a new spirit. And what is that going to produce? What does Ezekiel tell the people of Israel that Him putting His Spirit in, taking out the heart of stone, what does He tell them that's going to produce? What does He say? What will it cause them to do? It's right there in the passage in Ezekiel. you got it in front of you. Be obedient. He says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And when you go back to Deuteronomy, we won't, we don't have necessarily the time to do that, but when you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, you will find that all of the commandments that Moses gives to the children of Israel in in Deuteronomy 6, when he says, you know, the Lord is one, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your mind, your strength. Moses is going to later tell them, in order for you to do that, what I'm telling you to do in Deuteronomy 6, I've got to give you a new heart to do that. And so the promise of the new heart comes here in Ezekiel where he's promising essentially this new birth that Jesus then promises in John chapter 3, that he says must take place. You must be purified with water in the Spirit, that you must uh, then have, uh, you know, be cleansed from the inside out, and, uh, and essentially what that will do is cause you to obey. So, we get to this weird scene in the Gospels, where John is baptizing, everything is great, well, most things are great, some people don't want to get in the waters, and he's calling them vipers, and probably some people on the shore going, oh my goodness, you know, that's just kind of getting tense. They're getting in the waters and they're being baptized. They're being convicted. They're going, I don't want to be cut down like you just told them they're going to be cut down. And so they're getting in the waters. Everything is hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets in the waters. John sees him on the shore. And we're not going to go there just yet. We'll go there next time. But John sees him on the shore and knows that it's him. And he point, even points points to him, at least in the Gospel of John, he points to him and calls him out. And then this very same Jesus gets in the waters to be baptized by John. Now, what's the big problem with that? Initially, just your own feelings, you're there baptizing people, telling them to repent of sins, and you're dunking them, and Jesus gets in the water and says, here I am, baptize me. What would be your problem? Yeah, yeah. I, I have clearly missed something here. I have my wires crossed somewhere because I'm baptizing for repentance of sin, and here you stand. And I, I know who you are, and why would you be baptized? Why wouldn't you be doing the baptizing, right? So John tries to deter Jesus from his baptism. And he's insisting that he stood in need of baptism by Jesus. So either uh, uh, so earlier, John had chastised the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism, because they had not repented. And now he has trouble baptizing Jesus because baptism is not worthy of Jesus. Right? So, so you know, what is he going to do? So look at 4, 13 to 17. After leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, as Jesus is talking about, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. I realize just now I did four instead of three. It's actually Matthew chapter three. Sorry, I put the wrong verse down. I'm sorry. The previous chapter, it's Matthew chapter three. Let me, let's go there. I'll, I'll just read it. Give me just a second. Matthew chapter 3, uh, starting verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in, with whom I am well pleased. All right. So, how do we understand this then? So, on the one hand, John's baptism obviously is 
signifying repentance and confession of sin. And so obviously on the surface, there's this moment where John is kind of perhaps a little crisis moment, uh, recognizing, you know, even in his own humility, he is conscious of his own sin that he needs to be baptized by Jesus. And obviously seeing, knowing who Jesus is, doesn't detect any sin in him, knows that he is the perfect sacrifice. even calls him in, in the Gospel of John the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he has no sin that he needs to repent of or confess. So, uh, so John thinks, well, I should be baptized by you. However, Jesus' response is really telling. Uh, what is it that he says to him? Before you fill that out, I'm going to go back. Uh, what is it that he says to Jesus? And what is it that Jesus says to him? He says, I need to be baptized by you. What does Jesus say back to him? It's necessary to fulfill for us to fulfill all righteousness. He doesn't just say it's necessary for me to fulfill all righteousness. He says it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. So how, what do we make of that? Um, obviously, next one, uh, John's baptism, in addition to bringing about repentance of sin from the people and confession and all of those kinds of things in their baptism, it also begins or inaugurates this new community of the Messiah. The ones who are going to respond to Jesus' ministry and believe. And this community of the Messiah's people is going to be marked by ones who are filled with God's own Spirit and therefore they do what? They do God's will. They actually do what God is asking them to do. That was what Ezekiel said was going to happen. When I take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I put my own Spirit within you, That means that you're going to do something. That means that you're going to do my will. So Jesus is coming down into the waters of baptism, and he tells uh, John that this is what we're doing. Both you and I, it's necessary for both of us to fulfill all righteousness, meaning it is God's will that you baptize me. He appointed you the baptizer for this moment in time to prepare all the hearts of the people for the Messiah's kingdom. And he has determined that at this point in time, you, John, will baptize me. So it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it is necessary for us to do what God is commanding us to do. And to demonstrate to all of the people around us that we are marked by that inward change. Right? It's necessary for us to do that. So, John says, well, okay. Not only that, we find this later on in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching them to pray. And what is it that those who are following Jesus, who are His disciples, what is it that they should want if they are His disciples? Matthew 6.10 is part of what we call the Lord's Prayer. He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is the marker of the one who is following Christ as his disciple? What is it that that disciple wants both for himself and for all of the people around him? His church, as it were. What does he want? Yes, we want the will of God to be done. In other words, I personally want to walk in obedience to you here just like I were in heaven. Or just like it is done in heaven. What God says happens in heaven. And I want that to happen here. So when Jesus comes preaching, or when John even comes preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand... What is he talking about? God is requiring his people to be marked by obedience to him. Period. So, if you are part of his community, that's what he wants of you. 
If you're his disciple, he wants obedience. Jesus will later say in, Luke, I believe, the Gospel of Luke, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Couldn't put it any plainer. But there's another part of this. Jesus gets up out of the waters of baptism, and there's this moment here at the end of, in verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, remember last time we saw that John is crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. And that comes from Isaiah 40. Well, what he's preparing the people for is the coming of the Messiah. Well, in Isaiah, that marker in chapter, starting in chapter 40 and going really all the way to the end, but especially 40 to 55, is this period of Isaiah that is referring to the suffering servant, the one coming to do the will of the Lord and to suffer for the disobedience of the people. And so this suffering servant is called out in Isaiah 42, just two chapters later, in Isaiah 42, verse 1, he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, or in whom I am well pleased. I have put, what does he say? My spirit upon him, as we see the dove coming, the spirit descending like a dove coming down on him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. So this picture of Jesus coming up out of the waters and the spirit descending on him like a dove and this voice crying out from the heavens, calling out from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, is also a, a signifier to you the reader and to the person who's there witnessing this of the suffering servant picture of Isaiah chapter 42 on through Isaiah chapter 55. And what we see is that that suffering servant in Isaiah is not only going to obey God, but that he's going to go all the way through to bearing the griefs and the sins of all the people, as you're probably well familiar with Isaiah 53, which is kind of the pinnacle of this suffering servant portion of Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 9, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. For all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid up on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away." And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So what is the pinnacle, the climax of the suffering servant, Jesus? What is the pinnacle of his ministry in Isaiah? that he would bear the griefs of, and sorrows and afflictions of, of many, that he would bear the punishment for their transgressions. So in this baptism that Jesus is undergoing, that John at first is very hesitant to do, and Jesus says this is necessary because God has required it for us and we're going to obey him because that is the marker of people who have the Spirit of God inside them is that they obey. And when he does, it is demonstrated to everyone, yes, this indeed is obedience to God the Father. And this servant, who is my servant, with whom I am well pleased, 
coming up out of the waters is the very same one in Isaiah who's going to go forward all the way to the cross and bear the, the griefs, the transgressions of many. Questions? Yeah, many did believe him. And, and so here's the, the, the thing with the, the narrative. Um, how, how do I say this? Um, most of the Jews that are in positions of leadership, so the Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, Sanhedrin, John is a thorn in their side. Because as we talked about in the intertestamental period, there is a political game that they're playing where they, they are trying to keep their land and not be squashed by the Romans. And they're trying to... You can see... We'll see this as Jesus gets close to crucifixion. This is the game. This is the reason why they crucify... It was part of the reason, at least, why they crucify Jesus is because he is going to complicate things between us and Rome, right? So John the Baptist plays a very similar role in that one of the Roman, you know... Tetrarch is going to put him in prison and eventually behead him. And so he is a thorn in the side of many of the leadership because he's causing problems. But the vast majority of the Jews, I mean, I don't know what the percentile would be, but if I had to guess, I'd put it in the 90-some percentile of Jews, revered him as a prophet, even to the point where Josephus, when he mentions, he's a Jew, he's not a Christian, when, when he mentions John, he reveres him as a prophet. Everybody, everybody accepted you know, his testimony. But they did not identify, they did not connect that to Jesus, right? They didn't go that far. Many of them didn't connect it to Jesus. But when Jesus calls his disciples, a lot of the disciples that he's going to call are going to come from John's disciples. They're going to transition from John to Jesus and, and follow him. So, so there is some, you know, measure of impact that, that that John is making even on the Jews and in, in connecting them to Christ. So, I don't know. It's interesting. Go ahead. Oh, Jews today, uh, probably not. I, you know, I don't. To be honest with you, I don't know. Um, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. If they do revere him, it would be. Um, because they would read some ancient rabbis that revere him or that hail him as a prophet, maybe because of Josephus, maybe because of things like that. But know much about him in terms of connecting him to Jesus? Probably not, right? That, that, I would say definitely not, right? It would go that far. Timothy, did you have a question? Yes, so this is a, something big that we actually have to tackle because it's going to take the whole time next time is the accounts of John's gospel, the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is a baptism of Jesus, comes up out of the water, spirit descends on him like a dove. And Matthew, it's a, it kind of is Jesus sees this, and then who hears the voice? Luke and Mark, it seems to be everybody hears the voice. Spirit descends. John, it seems to be, John is the one that saw it. How do we make sense of all of those different accounts? That's obviously what we've got to spend a lot of time on. I didn't have enough time to cover that tonight. But yeah, that's where we've got to go next. Any other questions? Yep.
Is there a deeper theological reason why Jesus had to be baptized? Well, part of it, so if Jesus does not do what God is requiring, Jesus cannot stand in our place on the cross. Because he is requiring it of his people. So, if God is requiring this of his people, and Jesus is going to be one of the people, to stand in between God and the people, and take, the, take his wrath for the people, then he has to do what is required of the people. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's a deeper theological reason, but that is... Yeah. 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 But I think when Jesus tells John, what Jesus tells John in the waters is not primarily about that. Why is God requiring Jesus to be baptized? Because of what I just said. So he can stand in the place of his people. But what does Jesus tell John is the reason? Because we've got to obey God. You and me have to obey God. And, and so, yes, there's deeper theology. How much did John understand about, you know, all of that? I, I have no idea. But, but I think what Jesus is saying, and the only reason that gives me pause, if he said, it's necessary for me to fulfill all righteousness, well then, if he had said that, I would say, okay, well, he, that's what he's given him, the theological reason that I just, I just gave you. But for him to say, it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness, meaning, I think meaning me and you, John, it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness, to me, it's, that is what he's saying, is... We have to do God's will, and this is God's will. So we're going to do it. And John was like, all right, you know, it's good enough for me. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for uh, an opportunity to just carefully study it. And I pray that even as we go further, that other pieces uh, might be put together, that we might be able to understand uh, even more of the complexities, the simplicities, uh, the, maybe the deeper theological reasons, the less complex theological reasons, the very straightforward things that are said, that we might really understand it all. We want, we want all of it, as much as you're willing to give us. And so we pray that you would pour it on us. Uh, but we don't want understanding to be empty and to be uh, vain. We don't want to leave just with knowledge that puffs up. We want knowledge that affects the way we live. And so we pray that it, it, it actually impact our hearts and minds and shape us as we leave, that we might um, understand that you have not merely required obedience from the community that was going into the waters of the Jordan and being baptized. You require obedience of your people always. And as your people, we want to obey. So we pray that you give us hearts of obedience, uh, no matter how hard that is, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.